Good morning, church. I'll be doing the Bible reading. My name is Wendy. I'm from the Wanaveli Life Group. Our Bible reading today is from Exodus 40, uh, from verse 34 to 38. Exodus 40, from verse 34 to 38, I'll be reading. Then the cloud covered the tent of, of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout their journey, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set, will set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all this house of Israel, throughout all their journeys. This is the word of God. Thanks, Wendy. Why don't you just join me in a word of prayer before we come to this text. Father, you are indeed great and glorious and gracious, so gracious to us, Lord. And once again, we come to you desperately needing desperately needing you, and Father, relying on nothing but your mercy, your, your kindness, your goodness to us. Lord Jesus, please will you bring us to the Father this morning in the power of your Spirit. And, and Lord, we pray that no heart would go untouched and that we'd all leave here this morning, changed people for your glory. Amen. We're at the end of Exodus. We made it. Uh, it's important when you get to the end of any journey to, to take a look back and see where you've come from. Reflect on where you've come from. So just think back with me. Think back. You remember Exodus started in the darkness of bondage. But it ends in the light of God's gracious presence. Exodus started with echoes of creation. It ends in the beauty of new creation. The tabernacle is a model of Eden. The Lord himself returns to live in it. Exodus started with Israel in slavery to a tyrant. It ends with Israel in willing service of their loving God. How exactly does Exodus end? It ends with the glory of God. It ends with all of God's people, including those experiencing this through the pages of Scripture this morning, all of us. It ends with all of God's people basking in the glory of God. In fact, the book of Exodus gives us so much more than the book of Exodus. It gives us the shape of all of salvation history. It gives us the shape of the individual Christian life. From slavery to the mountain, through the wilderness, to the promised land. And what is the promise of the promised land? How does Exodus end? Not in the promised land, but with the picture of what the promised land promises. It's a mouthful, are you with me? Not in the promised land, but with a picture of what the promised land promises. And what is that? The glory of God. 
as one pastor put it, in the end and at the end, what you get from God is God. In the end and at the end, what you get from God is God. That is no small thing. That is the goal of history. That is the purpose of your life. That is the essence of worship. And it's so important because if we miss this, we fall into a terrible trap. If we miss this, God becomes a means to some other end. We want God because we want something else. We want God because we want money. We want health. We want security. We want forgiveness and a clear conscience. We want children. We want good relationships. We want community. All of them wonderful things. The problem is, if we want God because we want those things, then those things are what we really want. They are the purpose. They are the goal. And then, they have to be the true object of our worship. The Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. We thought about it last week at length. But the end of Exodus makes it clear. The goal of Exodus, the goal of all of salvation history, the goal of the Christian life, yours and mine, is God. In the end, and at the end, what we get from God is God. Exodus ends in the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The word glory literally means weight. It has connotations of light, weight and light. So it's, it's something substantial, something with gravitas, something of brilliance, something of splendor, something of abundance, something worthy of attention and honor and dignity and fame. God's glory. It is the presence of his divine nature. The revelation of God in his perfection. It is the experience of God as God. God in all of his godness. That's the glory of God. Now that can be a little bit abstract. Thankfully our passage makes it concrete for us. A little more concrete. And, and hopefully we're going to see why as we go through what our passage has to teach. We're going to see why the glory of God is the irresistible goal of all creation. So what do we see there? We see the glory of God in presence. The glory of God in holiness. The glory of God in majesty. The glory of God in faithfulness. We're going to look at all of that and then we're going to think about the glory of God to come. So the glory of God in presence, in holiness, in majesty, in faithfulness and then the glory of God to come. First off, behold the glory of God in his presence. This is a God who is determined to be with his people. He wants to be with us. We see that in at least three ways in our passage. Firstly, the earthly home of the Lord, the home he has instructed Israel to build, is what? 
is a tent. Now, I know what most of you think about camping, especially camping in the middle of winter. I don't have to explain to you that a tent is not luxury accommodation. If you stop to think about it, it doesn't really seem like a fitting home for the God of all creation, the God of glory. Why a tent? This is a God who condescends to be with his people as they are. They are going to be nomads in the wilderness. And so because he wants to be with them, he will live as they live. He will live in a tent. Believe it or not, that tent is the glory of God. Because of what it says about his desire to be with his people. The second thing we don't want to miss is that this tent is called the tent of the meeting. That's the name of the tent, the tent of the meeting. The tent exists so that God can have fellowship with his people. It's the tent of the meeting. He wants to be with his people. Finally, look at how verse 34 follows on from verse 33. End of 33. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In the Hebrew, there isn't even that little conjunction then. It's not even there. So the thing rushes seamlessly from Moses finishing the work to the glory of the Lord descending. It's as if the Lord was waiting somewhat impatiently for Moses to hurry up and finish the work. He wants to be with his people, and he wants to be with them now. God wants to be with you. He wants to be in your life as your father, with you as his child. If, and I know there's some of us here this morning, if you are feeling lonely, if you're feeling isolated, if you're feeling alone, reflect on that. Think about it. Pray about it. God desires to be with you, He wants to be in your company. He wants to be in your presence. It's his glory. It's wonderful. It's strange. It's hard to make sense of, especially when we consider what comes next. The glory of God in holiness. Look at verse 35. Not even Moses was able to meet with the Lord in the tent of the meeting. Because the glory of the Lord filled that place. So which is it? Does the Lord want to meet with his people or not? The truth is, he comes close. So close. Closer than any of us can come to one another. He comes close, but he comes close as himself. In all of his dangerous holiness. Now, holiness is beautiful. It's also dangerous. If the golden calf taught Israel anything, it taught them that they were sinners, that God was holy, and that you cannot mix holiness and sin without spontaneous combustion. Holiness is dangerous to us as sinners. It is threatening to us. It's so threatening that when the holiness of God came to us as a man, we killed that man. That's how threatening holiness is to us. 
That's how threatening the darkness, let me put it the other way, that's how threatening the light is to the darkness. That's how threatened the darkness is by the light. That's how threatened impurity is by perfect purity. God is glorious in his holiness. And so entrance into the tent of the meeting would only be on God's terms and at God's invitation. There is no other way to approach him and live. But because God in his glory wants to be with us, we don't wait very long for that invitation. In fact, that invitation is on the very next page of your Bible, the very next verse. So we end Exodus 40, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of the meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. In other words, the Lord invites Moses and the people to approach and to approach safely on the basis of a sacrifice for the atonement of their sin. That's what Leviticus is all about. Leviticus, the whole point of Leviticus is to show us how a holy God can still be present with his people. How the glory of God in presence and holiness can still hold together and burn even brighter because they hold together. Thirdly, behold the glory of God in majesty. As the glory of God descends, we see his majesty. This is the glory of the king. That's what we mean by majesty. God is the king. When he goes, they go. When he stays, they stay. Verse 36, in all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. The Lord leads his people with absolute authority. He is the absolute monarch. He is all-powerful. But please notice, he is also all-good. He is perfect in power, but he's also perfect in love. Perfect in love. He leads them in all power, but he leads them to a good place. The only way for them to get to that good place is to trust the good king. In their doubts, their fears, their temptations, they must look to the glory of the king. They must behold the glory of God in his majesty. But they must also behold the glory of God in his faithfulness. This is a God who keeps his promises. That's what we mean by faithfulness. He keeps his promises. The tabernacle was designed to house God's glory in the midst of his people. Now, if you remember, that project, the tabernacle project, began before the golden calf incident. If the promise of God to be with his people in his place, in the good land of his good blessing, if his promises survived the golden calf, well, then they can survive anything. 
If God's faithfulness can survive the golden calf in all of its backstabbing treachery, in all of its adulterous unfaithfulness on the wedding night, if God's promises can survive that, they can survive anything. God will have a people for himself. He will bless them with his presence. No amount of human rebellion can change that. No amount of human unfaithfulness can overcome or undermine his faithfulness. We see the glory of God in his unbreakable determination to love an unlovable people. We see the glory of God in his promise-keeping faithfulness. At the end of Exodus, the glory of God descends in presence, in holiness, in majesty, in faithfulness. But the end of Exodus isn't the end of the story. There was so much more of God's glory still to be seen. Moses saw the most. Amongst the Israelites, Moses saw more than any other Israelite. But even he only saw God's glory passing by. He saw it from the back, so to speak. We get to look God's glory full in the face. Israel saw the glory of God in presence. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Israel saw the glory of God in holiness. Jesus is the Holy One of God. Israel saw the glory of God in majesty. Jesus is the King of kings. Israel saw the glory of God in faithfulness. Every promise God ever made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He is the radiance of his Father's light. He is the fullness of God in the flesh of man. He is the image of God himself. He is the Lord of glory. Philip said, show us the Father. And Jesus replied, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Paul says, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Where do we see that face? In the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you want to see the glory of God in presence, read about the virgin birth. If you want to see the glory of God in holiness, watch Jesus cleanse a leper just by touching him. If you want to see the glory of God in majesty, watch Jesus rebuke the wind and the waves and then watch the storm cowering in the corner. If you want to see the glory of God in faithfulness, watch Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch him choose the cross. Choose the cross for you. For now, we see all of this with the eyes of faith. And only with the eyes of faith. But there will come a day, an actual day, just like today, there will come a day when we behold the glory of God face to face.
Listen to one account of that day. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. There will come a day, an actual day, just like today, when we see the glory of God face to face, when you look into the eyes of Jesus and he looks into your eyes. And on that day, we will bask in the glory of God. And that's all there really is to say. That is the truth that ends all other truths. That's the last word. In the end, and at the end, what we get from God is God. I would leave it there. Perhaps I should. But there's one strange aspect to this final truth. This goal of all other truths. There's one strange aspect that might be worth exploring only because it seems to add glory to glory. And we get there by asking this question. What do we do until that day? What are we supposed to do? Let me try and come at, come at the same thing but from another direction. If, if someone is looking for the glory of God today, where will he find it? You might find the answer surprising, perhaps even shocking, might even be a little bit depressing. However it lands, the Bible's answer to that question is this. If someone is looking for the glory of God today, he will find it in the church. Ephesians chapter 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens and fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You see, just as the glory of God descended in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple, so it now descends on the church. Not the building, the people. God's glory descends by His Spirit on His people. That means that if someone is looking for the glory of God today and they should come through those doors we hope they will find the glory of God here. We don't hope 
It's a certainty. It's the witness of Scripture. If they are looking for the glory of God, they will find it here. Or if by some accident they arrive at the Nootweg life group on a Tuesday night, they should experience the glory of God. No pressure, Nootweg. In fact, they should find the glory of God whenever they encounter the church. Either the church gathered like this in one of our meetings, or the church scattered out in the world as individual Christians. We are to reflect the glory of God. That is where you find it. You find it, if you are looking for the glory of God in the world today, you find it in the church. Not the buildings, the people. Now if we are to reflect the glory of God, the question is how? How? Do we do it in our singing? Maybe we should buy some smoke machines. Maybe you're supposed to see the glory of God in the pastors. Heaven help us, right? The only thing I can think of is to buy Rafa one of those uh, glory of God reflective suits. Maybe we need a bit more power in our ministry. Maybe that's the road to glory. We just need to be a bit more spectacular. And the world will see God's glory. Sadly, that's a common answer in church culture. But it really isn't the Bible's answer. The Bible gives us at least three ways that we can reflect the glory of God. At least three just going to focus on three this morning. And you're going to see they're massively counterintuitive. They hardly make any sense, but here they are. We reflect the glory of God in our suffering, in our change, and then in everything else. In our suffering, in our change, and in everything else. We reflect the glory of God in our suffering. This is one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. He's talking about the gospel. But we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is to your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's one of the extraordinary upside-down truths of the Christian faith that God's glory is revealed not in being spectacular, but in how we suffer. Not in our greatness, but in our weakness. 
It's massively countercultural. But it shouldn't surprise us if we stop to think about it. It really shouldn't. The more our power is stripped away in suffering, the more the power of God shines through us as we can do nothing but put our trust in Him. It really shouldn't surprise us. That's how it was for Jesus. The road to glory was through the cross. It was for Jesus and it will be for us because no servant is above her master. So when we suffer well, we reflect the glory of God. But what does it mean to suffer well? It doesn't mean, let's start there, it doesn't mean stoic indifference. Pretending that it doesn't really hurt. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean the power of positive thinking. Stiff upper lip. Cowboys don't cry. It means in our suffering, we remain hopeful. It means there will be tears because suffering is still suffering and God does not ask us to pretend. There will be tears. But there won't be utter despair, utter hopelessness. We won't be consumed by self-pity, by bitterness, by grumbling, by an angry sense of entitlement. I deserve better. In the place of all that, in the midst of the suffering, there remains in the depths of your soul, at the pit of your soul, a stubborn, immovable, unshakable hope. Hope because we know that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Think about this with me. Paul is saying that being crushed, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down are light and momentary troubles. How does he get there? How can he say that? Light and momentary how? Not because they don't hurt. And not light and momentary compared to other people's suffering. Light and momentary compared to the weight and the eternity. Can you hear the contrast? Light and momentary compared to the weight and the eternity of God's glory, which is our certain comfort and our certain destination. We all know people who suffer well. They are sitting near us. We know people who suffer well, and we know we've experienced this for ourselves. It's one of the great privileges of being in God's family, that we, we happen to know people who are rooted in Christ, who suffer well, who display the glory of God in their suffering. By the way they suffer, by the way they suffer, you see 
the presence, the holiness, the majesty, the faithfulness of God. What does it look like? What are the hallmarks, some of the hallmarks of that kind of suffering? Well, I'm sure there are many. Let me just give you a few, just to, just as food for thought. Here, let me suggest a few to you. A resilient trust in God. You know, when, when somebody is suffering deeply and their trust in Christ is shocking almost to you, those words fall off their lips with conviction. God is good. God is good. I hope you've had the privilege of seeing that in the life of one of your brothers and sisters. A resilient trust in God. A sense of humor. How often do we experience that in the life of someone who is suffering well? A sense of humor. They just don't take themselves all that seriously. A deep concern and compassion for the suffering of others, even in the midst of their own suffering. Now these things just don't make sense in a season of suffering. But we see them. They're the fruit of God's Spirit. We see them in those who suffer well, in those who are rooted in God's glory, experiencing God's glory for themselves, reflecting God's glory to all of us and to the world around them. So the person looking for God's glory is going to find it in our suffering. Strangely enough. And secondly, in our change. Again, one of Paul's letters to the Corinthian church. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now this truth begins to make sense of that objection that, that rises within us, that shock that rises within us, that the church should be the home of God's glory. You see, when the world looks at us as the church, whether gathered together, meeting like this, or scattered out there in the world, whether as individuals or as the church family, when they look at us, they are not supposed to see perfection. What a wonderful relief. Because we know that's not what they're going to find. Don't we? They are not going to find perfection here. But they will find progress. They will look at you and see that you've changed. It was Sven's testimony this morning. And as extraordinary as it was, it was ordinary in other ways, in, in that it's so many people's experience. They will look at you, they will see that you've changed, that you are changing. You're simply not who you were before. Every time you decide to be present when previously you would have chosen convenience, or to be pure when previously you would have chosen pleasure, or to be humble and faithful when previously your only loyalty was to yourself and only yourself, Every time they see that, you are reflecting the glory of God in your life. 
If there is change in your life, the kind of change that comes from contemplating the Lord's glory, from fixing your eyes on Jesus, from walking with him, and people see that change and they somehow know that it has something to do with Jesus. Every time they see that, you are showing them the glory of God in your life. Humble change reflects the glory of God. We don't just reflect the glory of God in our suffering or in our change. We reflect it in everything else as well. Paul, once again to the Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, if you can reflect the glory of God in what you eat and what you drink, well, then you can reflect the glory of God in everything, in every single mundane detail of your life, the boring details. You can and you must. When you, when you first become a Christian, you realize Sundays, it doesn't take long, you realize Sundays are a big deal, Sundays are important. The hard part, or the harder part, is figuring out what to do with Monday through Saturday, right? What difference does my, my faith make to the rest of my life? The big part, the big chunk. And again, this is such a liberating truth because God's glory permeates everything, every crack of your life. His glory permeates everything, so we don't have to live two lives. One reserved for a Sunday, and then another one Monday through Saturday. We don't have to do that. Our lives take on the color, the texture, the flavor of God's glory. Sunday all the way through to Saturday. Our lives can take on the color, the texture, the flavor of God's glory. Paul talks about the fragrance of God's glory. And it's the fragrance of life rather than death. Of course, this poses a question. Does your life, does my life, does your life, all of your life, whether gathered with the church on a Sunday or scattered Monday through Saturday, does all of your life have the glow, the fragrance of Jesus to it? It's Father's Day, so it's only appropriate that I, that I reference my father on this day. When I was growing up, he taught me that I must never do anything if I'm not happy to sign my name underneath it. It was a great lesson. It's really, it's really stuck with me. It's been very fruitful in my life. But I think we can go one step better, one infinite step better. I'm going to try and encourage my kids never to do anything if they're not happy to sign the name of Jesus underneath it. Because they belong to him. You see, that's a much higher bar, isn't it? And it'll lead to a much richer life. And to the extent that any of us get that right, we will be giving people a glimpse, a taste, the fragrance of God's glory. Now, is that you? Is it me? Can you sign the name of Jesus at the end of each day, as the song goes? In the way you conduct yourself at work, at home, in the parking lot, online, in your imagination. 
Not in perfection, but in humble progress. Does your progress whisper the presence, the holiness, the majesty, the faithfulness of the king? If not, if there's a complete vacuum in that area, if there's no hint of the king there, you could be living a lie. You could be cheating yourself and everyone else around you. Because we are going to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There will be an actual day when you look into his eyes. Why would you live as if that's not true? What a waste. There are such riches waiting for us if we will only fix our eyes on Jesus now and look forward to that day and anticipate that day and allow the glory of God to shine in us and through us to a desperately dark world. In the end, and at the end, what you get from God is God. This life is going to end. And when it does, it will end in God's glory. Until then, every moment, moment by moment, is a precious opportunity to live out that certain future now. To put the glory of God on display in the way that you suffer. In the way that you are changing. In everything, in every mundane detail of your life. You can put the presence, the holiness, the majesty, the faithfulness of God in the front shop window of your life. Why? Because it's in the back office. By the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that's what's in the back office. And so you can put it on, on display in the front shop window. That's who you are in Christ. You have experienced the presence, the holiness, the majesty, and the faithfulness of God, and you can display that glory to the world around you. It's who you are in Christ. You can glorify God in everything, in what you eat, what you drink, how quick you are to say sorry, how quick you are to forgive people, how you deal with failure, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, in your ambitions, in your emotions, what moves you, what motivates you, what makes you angry, what fills your heart with joy in everything. What a magnificent blessing. Every single moment of every single day is charged with potential for God's glory in us. Imagine, it's crazy, it's crazy, but that's what it is in Christ. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. Here's the question. What is the chief end of man? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him. Forever. Forever starts now. Let's pray.
Father, we long for that day. That day when you will reveal yourself in all your glory, face to face, so that we might enjoy you forever. And as we wait for that day, help us to behold your glory in the face of your Son as we encounter him in your word. And change us by your Spirit into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. We pray that this church would be a people, whether gathered or scattered, where those who are looking for your glory can find it, can taste it, can enjoy the fragrance in the way that we suffer, in the way that we are changing, and in everything we do and everything we are. We pray these things for our eternal joy and your eternal glory. Amen.